Hi, my name is Maggie. The Old Testament reading is found in 1 Samuel 18, 1-5. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over men of war. And this was good in the sight of all people, also in the sight of Saul's servants. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Katie. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 2, 19, 20, and 25. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphrodites, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Gaylene, and thank you for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We ask that as we open it, as we listen to it, that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds. Help us, Lord, to see you and to hear you and to be transformed into your image. We pray these things in Jesus' name to the glory of God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to New Life Downtown. We're so glad you're here. My name's Glenn Packiam. I get to serve as the pastor here at New Life Downtown. Thrilled to be with all of you today. Uh, Also, especially thrilled to be wearing a tweed blazer because it is cold enough now. Glory be. There might even be some sweaters in the house. How about that? Hey, we're in a series, and we've been in a series all fall um, through a book of the New Testament called Philippians. And Philippians was written by a man named Paul. Paul was the most influential, the most significant church planter at the beginning of this Jesus movement before it became known as Christianity, this movement of Jesus followers. And Paul began planting churches around this particular region of the world. And he planted a church in Philippi with the help of Lydia and some others there in Philippi. And now he's writing back to these followers of Jesus and he's writing to them from prison. And very likely he's writing to them from a prison in Ephesus, could be Rome, but maybe I tend to be more persuaded by the theory that says he's writing from Ephesus. Well, either way, he's writing to these guys. And if you've read several of the other letters Paul's written that are part of our Bible, part of the scriptures, you maybe would come across some strong words from Paul. He tells the Galatians, he calls them foolish. 
uh, the Corinthians. He, he, he tells them how they need to repent of some of their actions. But to the Philippians, he generally feels pretty positive. In fact, a number of times in this letter, Paul refers to joy and rejoicing and his own joy and their joy. And so sometimes Philippians is nicknamed this letter of joy. And so we've called this series Complete Joy, this series on Philippians. And as we've walked through this series, the previous six weeks or so, we've talked about uh, friendships. We've talked about how Paul has deep affection for the Philippians. We've talked about discernment, his prayer for them so they can actually think through what it means to live out this new Jesus life. We've talked about sharing the gospel, letting it spread through us. We've talked about a revolutionary kind of unity that the church is meant to embody. We've talked about the person and the pattern and the promise of who Jesus is. And then last week, Pastor Jason talked to us about how the saved live, how we actually live out this salvation life in front of the world that's watching. And this morning, the, 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 the title that I've given the talk this morning is There Are Saints Among Us. Here Paul pauses in his letter and he's not singing a hymn, he's not giving sort of theology, he's not giving uh, a pastoral instructions. Here he seems to spend a lot of time talking about two dear brothers and friends in the gospel, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so the title this morning for our reflection is There Are Saints Among Us. Yesterday I asked on Facebook, what comes to mind when you think of saints? And someone goes, Drew Brees, you know? Like, okay, I, I get it, NFL season, we all need another team to think about other than the Broncos, sadly. <laughs> what do you think of when you think of saints? Oftentimes what comes to mind are these uh, maybe it's medieval art or Byzantine art of these heroic figures or figures that we imagine to be heroic, that they tower above all their peers. These are unusual men and women, people who went to their martyred death without fear and with tremendous faith in God. And we think of these as heroic individuals that are unlike anyone else. Is that really the picture of saints? Maybe that only gets reinforced in our age of sort of celebrity Christians and we think about people with a lot of Instagram followers or Twitter followers and we think, oh, well, this, this is how the extraordinary Christians live and then there's the rest of us. And yet Paul says something very different to us about this picture of what it means to follow Jesus, that actually... Christianity is not about a few exceptional heroic individuals, but is actually about a great company of friends living this out together. And so, in fact, when you look at Paul's life, even Paul did not work alone. One of the things that often gets skipped over when we preach through the Bible or preach through Paul's letters is we usually skip over lists of names. Right? I mean, if you're, if you're in a Bible plan and you read through the Old Testament and you get to the part in Chronicles and there's a whole bunch of lists of whose family is what family, and you're like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and skip that and just check the box red. I've done it. You know, let's keep going for my one-year Bible's sake, right? Listen, as Eugene Peterson once joked, those, those genealogies seem boring unless it's your family. And when it's your family, you're like, look, Mom, we're in the Scriptures, right? Because these family lists are personal and powerful. And Paul in the New Testament is the reason that we know a whole bunch of names that we wouldn't otherwise know without him. There's a whole bunch of people that were like, I, I don't, who, who, who's, who, who's Yodia and Syntyche? We're not sure who these ladies are. Who are these people that he's referring to? And we don't get a whole lot of background information, but Paul can't help but name names because Paul never worked alone. In fact, 
all of these, even in this church in Philippi, we think of Lydia, we think of Timothy, we think of Epaphroditus, we think of Yodia, and we think of Syntyche, all names that would have been well-known and well-loved people to this very community. So the first thing I want to say to us this morning is that everybody needs somebody. Everybody needs somebody sometime. Even Paul. And we think of Paul as like, well, Paul, you were sort of like the superstar. Like you didn't actually need, like you just brought Timothy along to sort of have like a mentee along the way, but you didn't actually have to do this. Paul's like, no, we're about to find out how dear Timothy and Epaphroditus were to him. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Philippians 2, verse 19. We're going to read all the way to verse 30. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen or use uh, an app on your phone, whichever you prefer. But stay with me as we listen to Paul talk about these two friends. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to see you soon so that I may be encouraged by hearing about you. I have no one like him. I mean, think about that phrase. I want to send Timothy to you. I have no one like him. This guy is special. I have no one like him. He is a person who genuinely cares about your well-being. All the others put their own business ahead of Jesus Christ's business. You know his character, how he labors with me for the gospel like a son works with his father. So he is the one that I hope to send as soon as I find out how things turn out here for me. In other words, I'm not sure if I'm going to die in this prison or not, but I really hope Timothy makes it to you. I trust in the Lord that I also will visit you very soon. And then verse 25, I think it's also necessary to send Epaphroditus to you. He is my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, and he is your representative who serves my needs. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why we think Paul was in an Ephesian prison because the the distance between Ephesus and Philippi would not have been as great. And so it's possible that Epaphroditus was traveling, bringing him supplies on behalf of the Philippian church, and Paul was receiving it. And he says, he misses you all. And he was upset because you heard he was sick. Epaphroditus strikes me as the guy that he could be like hacking up a lung and he'll be like, I'm fine. He didn't want them to know that he was sick or that he was that ill. And he said, in fact, he was so sick that he nearly died. But God had mercy on him, and not just on him, but also on me, because his death would have caused me great sorrow. Therefore, I am sending him immediately, so that when you see him again, you can be glad, and I won't worry. So welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and show great respect for people like him. Show great respect for people like him. He risked his life and almost died for the work of Christ, and he did this to make up for the help that you couldn't give me. Here we find that Timothy and Epaphroditus were not ornamental to Paul's life. They were not just sort of, well, I suppose Jesus sent them out two by two. Maybe I'll just have a traveling companion. This is just sort of a token ministry partner. He's saying, listen, Timothy is dear to me. I have no one like him. Epaphroditus, he risked his life to serve me. You should have great respect for people like him. This is Paul trying to take whatever spotlight early Christians began to put on him, and he began to deflect it onto others. And he began to say, there's no Paul if there's no Timothy, and there's no Paul if there's no Epaphroditus, and even if I can't come to you, I hope these guys come to you and you treat them with honor and with respect. Paul is showing us that even this great apostle of faith needed others, needed somebody. Recently, I was reading 
the most recent kind of uh, exposition of uh, Barna's study on young people who have had what, he, what they call resilient faith. And David Kinneman uh, is a friend, and Kinneman's writing this in a book uh, called Faith for Exiles. And one of the things that they decided to bring out is they've, been, they've studied over the last several years 18 to 29-year-olds who grew up as Christians, and they identified the ones who actually continued to attend church at least once a month, <laughs> engaged beyond worship services, who still trust in the authority of the Bible, still are committed to Jesus personally and confessionally. They confess Him as the crucified and risen Lord and express a desire to transform society because of their faith. Of the 18 to 29-year-olds that Barna has studied over the last several years, only 10% fit that criteria. Only 10%. And they, and they name this, Kinneman names this resilient disciples, or resilient, the ones with a resilient faith, resilient disciples. And then he begins in that book to kind of unpack some of the qualities, some of the characteristics of those with a resilient faith. And one of the things that was remarkable to me was the way that these resilient disciples had close relationships with other followers of Jesus. There's nobody who walks this life of following Jesus alone. In fact, 88% of the resilient disciples said that church is a place where I belong. I found a place to fit. I found a place where I found my people. I found others like me. There are others. 85% said that there is someone in their life who encourages them to grow spiritually. 85% said we found others who encourage us to actually grow spiritually. Look, the myth of the self-motivated follower of Jesus has to be exploded today. The illusion of saying, well, if I really just was a strong enough Christian, then I wouldn't need friends. That is a lie. In fact, the enemy does his work by first isolating us, by first convincing us that we need to sort out our issues alone, and then we can come back with Christian community. Listen, if you're wrestling with doubt, if you're wrestling with, with behavior or actions or shame, the very place we want you to be is in relationship with other followers of Jesus. Don't ever let shame lie to you and say, I couldn't possibly be here. Don't ever let the devil lie to you and say, well, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't say nine of, of, of these ten things are true, so maybe I should just stop coming. Listen, please keep showing up. Please keep showing up. Not because we need to make attendance benchmarks. I could care less about that. But because we need each other. The only way to have a resilient faith is to have others around you. 85% said there's someone in their life who encourages them to grow spiritually. Here's Paul in prison, and we want to imagine that Paul would have been just fine on his own. Paul, surely you have strong faith. You're in prison. Maybe the, the, your, your the ministry, it's the twilight of your ministry life. Paul, you surely never faced discouragement, did you? Read 2 Corinthians sometime. Paul talks about despairing for his life. Paul talks about a kind of depression state in his life. Everybody needs somebody. And Paul says, if, if I didn't have Epaphroditus, I don't know that I would have made it here in the prison. And he said, and actually, Epaphroditus was just a witness to me of all of you in Philippi, that you had not forgotten me. It would have been easy to think that I had been forgotten. The second thing we get from this these few verses here where Paul's talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus is that actually the kingdom redefines family. 
The kingdom redefines what family looks like. I, um, if you know me, you know I love the West Wing. And uh, I'm on my second rewatch of the, the West Wing. I hope Netflix never um, loses the rights to show the West Wing on Netflix. And, uh, and if you dig a little deeper, you know that the writer, for the first four seasons anyway, is a guy named Aaron Sorkin. And I'm a huge fan of whatever Sorkin writes. I've seen, I think, every one of the movies that he's written. And I heard an interview with him recently talking specifically about the TV show, The West Wing. And he said, he said, reflecting back, this is now some 20 years on, and he was reflecting back and he said, you know, I think kind of my signature um, fascination or the thing that has captured my attention for all of the years, really for everything that I write, is how unlikely people at a workplace somehow become like family to one another. And so these people that for a few years are serving in the office of the president and they've come from in an intense situation from different backgrounds. And he says, I, I just love telling the story of how individuals find themselves in a city where there, there is no flesh and blood family, but they become like family to one another. Now, of course, Sorkin's not the only one to have done this. You think of lots of TV shows have made that their premise, perhaps most notably Friends. Well, it's questionable if they ever had jobs and how they afforded rents <laughs> in the village. But anyway, um, <laughs> lots of TV shows reflect on this because you are the generation, we are the generation that has moved away from the places that we've grown up in the highest percentage ever. Did you know that? that prior to your generation, my, I'm 41, prior to my generation, and then much more so for those of you younger than me, you're the first ones in the highest percentage to have moved away from places where you've grown up. So many of you are sitting here today, and you're like, yeah, no kidding, I got no family here. And others of you, you're, you're empty nesters, and you're like, yeah, my kids all took off. Like, I don't know where they are. They're all over the country, like, but I'm still here. And sometimes they call, sometimes they don't call. What do we do with this? This is the reality of, of uh, a world that is increasingly urbanizing. The move towards cities is both a good and a bad thing. We could, we could talk about the positives of it. We could talk about the challenges of it. But I'll tell you the opportunity of it for the church. The opportunity that this affords us as a church is to recognize that actually the kingdom of God has always tried to redefine what family is. You hear Jesus, you know, it's very interesting because if you only had a Colorado Springs, North Colorado Springs, Briargate definition of family values, you might be tempted to look in the Gospels where Jesus praised the value of preserving the nuclear family. But you actually find the opposite. You find Jesus saying, who's my mom? Who's my brother and sister? And we're like, <gasps> aghast. Surely this is not our candidate of family values. And he says, no, look, anyone who follows my father is my mother and brother and sister. And in fact, he says something even stronger elsewhere. He says, look, if you're not willing to deny or even hate, used, of course, in a sort of exaggerated form, if you're not even willing to hate then you, your, 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 your family of upbringing and follow me, then you're not worthy of me. And you're like, boy, that does not sound the way that we would have thought Jesus would sound. What's he saying? He's not denigrating the family. He's actually expanding our vision of what family is. He's not devaluing the immediate family of mother, father, brother, sister. He's redrawing the lines. He's saying, look, it's great to, to think about your flesh and blood family, but I want you to know, listen, some of you grew up hearing the phrase, blood is thicker than water. 
right? And so family is more important than friendships. I understand that way of thinking. But the kingdom says the blood of Jesus is thicker than anything. That actually it's our fellowship in Christ that is supposed to supersede any other lines of connection. Now that confronts us because we want Jesus to bless our suburban dream. We want Jesus to say, just tell me that I can be all about me and my family. I've had, listen, this is, this is a little bit of a pastoral risk, but I've had people say to me, look, I'm just not sure if we're going to attend church anymore because I don't know if that's the best thing for my family. And I want to say to them, the kingdom calls you to see a bigger family. And if you can't see a bigger family, that's actually in the long run not what's best for your family. And so often we draw these huge lines of demarcation, build these giant walls around our 2.5 kids and picket fence and a dog, and we say, this is me and my family values and my suburban dream. And then we put a Jesus sticker over it and say, God blesses it, now everybody else get out. And the kingdom says, tear it all down and open up your heart. To the Jewish followers of Jesus, Paul said, the Gentiles are your family too. And they're like, oh, to the church in Philippi, he's like, the retired Roman soldiers who a generation ago were the ones who colonized your city, they're your family too. And they're like, we don't want that. We think Jesus will bless our little tiny definitions of family, but the kingdom actually explodes it. It says, take that same idea and expand it. Look beyond your domestic space. Look beyond your nuclear family. This is why we do child dedications in front of the whole church. Have you ever wondered, like, why not? Why don't we just bless little babies at your home and have a little potluck with only people you would invite? <laughs> because the church is supposed to be full of people that you wouldn't invite. <laughs> yes, come on, that's it. That's why we do this. So we, we dedicate these little children every month in front of you as, to, as if to say, whether you like it or not, you're their crazy aunties and uncles. <laughs> like we're, we're connected here. There's no, we got to redefine what family looks like. Paul had relationships that actually were bonded by intimacy. Listen to some of this. In verse 8, the beginning of Philippians, Philippians 1, verse 8, he says to the Philippians, he says, God is my witness. I feel affection for all of you. This is familial feelings, a sense of affection to the Philippians. But then, specifically our text this morning, what he says, says about Timothy, he says, you know his character, how he labors with me for the gospel like a son works with his father. Paul's saying, look, this Timothy, he's like a son to me. And I know this can get weird, and some of you are old enough to have seen church movements where we started calling each other son and daughter, and like, it can get weird fast. I get it, and I don't want it to be weird. I just want you to think through the bonds of connection. And then with Epaphroditus, he says, I think it's also necessary to send Epaphroditus to you. He is my brother. And I looked up the Greek words for both son and brother, and guess what they mean? Son and brother. Like actually, like literally, like this is what Paul's saying, this is my family. Now, here's what's curious about Paul. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and told them that he was single, that he had no wife. And we don't know the story. In fact, there's three theories, three possibilities, and we don't, we're, we're filling in the gaps. We don't know. 
Either he never got married, which is possible, but not probable, because most Jewish men around 18 got married. So Paul, with all the pedigree of his family history, we're about to read all about that next week when we read Philippians 3. We know the pedigree of the Jewish family he came from. It's more probable that he was married. Then what happened to his wife? Well, the second theory, possible that she died. That would not have been out of the question. Mortality rates were a lot younger in the ancient world. It's very possible that she died. But it's also possible that when Paul had his dramatic conversion and began following Jesus, you know, there was 10 years where Paul went back to his hometown. What was he doing during those 10 years of silence? Is it possible that Paul was trying to persuade his wife and his family and his parents and her parents that Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for? And they all said, Paul, you're crazy. And Paul said, okay. And she said, I'm not coming with you. Is that possible that she deserted him and left him? It's also possible. We don't know for sure. But the point is, Paul had to really lean in to this conviction that the kingdom forms a new kind of family. Paul had to really lean in on this. He wasn't getting emails from home saying, Mom, could you send a care package to me in, in prison? He wasn't leaning on flesh and blood siblings. Paul formed a new kind of family, and I think this is why he has such strong language for it. To the Philippians, I feel affection for you. To Timothy, you're like a son. Epaphroditus, he's my brother. So not only intimate relationships, but he had these interdependent relationships. Listen to this in Philippians 1 verse 7. He's just talking to the Philippians. He says, you are all my partners in God's grace. A word that denotes a mutuality, a back and forthness. And then about Timothy. We've already seen this verse, but to highlight a different part of this verse. How he labors with me. You notice Paul doesn't say, Timothy who does all my grunt work for me. Timothy, who works for me, he's just my employee. This is Timothy who labors with me. There's an interdependence to these relationships. And then Epaphroditus, in, 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 in a few verses later, he says, he's my brother, my co-worker, fellow soldier. These are all terms of mutuality and reciprocity. This is how Paul has formed a new kind of family. Look, how do you know that you've got a kingdom kind of family going? Not only is the relationship close, but it's also reciprocal. There's a back and forthness. Sometimes in church, you, you, you form relationships where you're mostly on the receiving end or you're mostly on the giving end, and that's okay. It's very clear Paul was like a father to Timothy, and Timothy was like a son to him. That's not to say that they were perfectly even. That, that's not the point. But the point was even in their differing uh, uh, levels of of authority, or if you want to put it this way, of power differentials. Even in that, Paul says, but Timothy, he's with me. There's a back and forthness to this. There's a mutuality to this. But here's what else I want you to see. Look at the way Paul describes Timothy and Epaphroditus. He points out how both of these men live and love like Jesus. Verse 20 of Philippians 2, he talks about Timothy and he says, he's a person who genuinely cares about your well-being. What does that sound like? That sounds like, remember a couple weeks ago, just a few verses earlier, Paul's telling the Philippians in verse 3, he says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Don't, but with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their good, watch out for what is better than others. So Paul has just told the Philippians, don't be concerned about yourself. Look after other people's needs. And then a few verses later, he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you because that's how Timothy lives. 
He will actually show you what I've been telling you. He'll actually live in front of you the way I've been trying to describe to you. And then Epaphroditus, verse 27, it says he was so sick he nearly died. He risked his life and almost died for the work of Christ. And he did this to make up for the help you couldn't give me. Who does that sound like? Just a few verses before, when Paul talks about Jesus in verse 7, Philippians 2, verse 7, he says, But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. And when he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death. He says, look, I'm glad Epaphroditus didn't die, because that would have been a great sorrow to me. But Epaphroditus served me so much that he almost died. Like he risked his life. This is Paul's way of saying, the stuff that I told you about in the abstract, I'm going to now show you in the concrete. Some of you need to see this. Not just hear a sermon about, oh yeah, we should live Christ-like. You're like, we need to see some. Who lives like this? It's really remarkable to me that the two people that Paul has invested in end up not looking like Paul, but end up looking like Jesus. So let me say this clearly this morning. The goal of mentoring is not to reproduce yourself but to see Christ formed in someone else. That's what it is. Some of you are in the room and you, you've got a lot of years under your belt. You're the wise sages in our midst. And you're nervous about signing up for a meal group with younger couples or younger people because you're like, well, my life was, a I didn't really do it all perfectly. I wasn't a perfect parent. I wasn't a perfect spouse. Like, my track record is not squeaky clean. Like, I can't, and I got good news for you. Your goal is not to make them like you. Your goal is to allow Jesus to be formed in them. And everybody can do that. Everybody can live that out. The goal is not to say, well, let me tell you, these were the three ways that we did everything right, and these were the four keys, you know. No, no, Paul's saying, look, I'm the chief of sinners, but I've got these, a son and a brother who end up living like Jesus and looking like Jesus, and that is my great joy. And so Paul wants to send them. Listen to this. Verse 19, I hope in Jesus to send Timothy to see you soon. Skip down, verse 23. So he is the one that I hope to send as soon as I find out how things turn out. Verse 25, I think it's also necessary to send Epaphroditus to you. He's my brother, a co-worker. Verse 28, therefore I am sending him to you immediately. Paul can't wait to send these two men to the church in Philippi. Why? Because we need people to follow. And so the last thing I want to say to us this morning is that there are saints among us. There are actually saints among us. Now recalibrate your image of what saints are. Saints are not people who've lived, the life, lived their lives perfectly, somehow earned a halo while still walking on earth, you know. Saints are people who've just Stuck with it. Kept in relationship with other followers of Jesus and kept following Jesus. And somehow over time, their lives just a little bit more began to resemble Jesus to others around them. And Paul says, I, I need you to see these people. I need you to see what it can look like, what your life can look like two years from now, three years from now, five years from now, ten years from now. It's possible. It's possible. There are saints 
among us. I think about uh, growing up, there were people around us who were always showing us a way to kind of live out this faithfulness. My dad's side of the family, I've told you before, was Hindu, and so when my dad converted, we were cut off from that side of the family. We never really saw them. We interacted quite a bit with my mom's side of the family, but they spread out all over. She had a sister in, in Singapore. She had a sister in Sri Lanka. She had a uh, brother in, in Canada, and so we didn't see them a whole lot either. So the aunties and uncles in my life were all the people from church. And actually, in, in uh, Asian culture, you call every adult, if you're a kid, you call every adult auntie and uncle. It can be very confusing to an outsider, you know, but in, in, in our culture, it was just how you denoted respect. And so I had all these aunties and uncles who were, were not shy about correcting me, <laughs> but they were also not shy about praying for me and encouraging me in the Lord. And I could name a children's pastor named Michael Raj, who's now in Australia, pastoring at a church. I could think of the ways he took me out to uh, the arcade, you know, things we didn't really do in my family. Took me to the arcade and Kentucky Fried Chicken, because that was the treat in Malaysia, you know, American food. I could think of the conversations we had in cars. I could think of a piano teacher named Rocky, who would invite a group of us over, stay up late to watch English Premier League football, <laughs> which was like in the middle of the night, Malaysian time. I think about coming here to New Life. I came here to New Life, to Colorado Springs, 19 years ago. And my first job was just to shadow a worship pastor around, <laughs> a guy named Ross Parsley. If he did a funeral, I was going to that funeral. If he had a meeting, I was going to that meeting. If he had a wedding, I was going to that wedding. That was my whole first year here, was just to be his shadow. I think about the people who've lived their lives out in front of me, and actually here at New Life Downtown, they're saints among us. Last weekend, we were downtown doing a little family um, photo shoot around the downtown area. We were driving right by Palmer, and as we were turning, Holly and I looked, and we saw Jill Custer tending to the flowers right in the median outside of Palmer. Did you know Jill does that? Did you know that New Life Downtown has won, like, awards for that flower median because Jill and her team have maintained that garden bed? Isn't that awesome? Like, you didn't even know that, right? I think about Dan and Donna O'Brien, who've lived their lives faithfully in front of so many. Dan found me several years ago when I was going through a, a difficult season at the church with tra transitions that happened at New Life, and Dan found me and he said, I'm going to take you out to lunch now. And I said, Okay. And we started having lunch, and then as we started talking every month, and then after that he said, I need to get you running. It was kind of a polite way of saying, you're gaining a little bit of weight here in your 30s, Pacquiam. And so we went out running. We go running when it was cold. We go running when it was nice. We go running all the time. And he took the initiative to, to seek me out. I think about Gentry and Gaylene Gardner, who have walked through unspeakable loss, and yet keep showing up on Sunday to worship the Lord. Read scripture. Be with the saints. I think of Casey and Andrea who work behind the scenes to care for the people in our congregation that find themselves on the edges of Colorado Springs. There are saints among us. You just got to find them. You got to open your eyes a bit. I think of Joey and Emily Jimenez loving on Young Life, students in Young Life for year after year after year, faithfully, Colorado College. 
There are saints at New Life Downtown. I don't even need to send them to you. They're already here. I think of Joy and Leonard Lake. Some of you may know this, but they, they've been in New Life for a lot of years, like decades, longer than me. And um, they first started serving on the communion team on the Sunday night service before there was New Life Downtown in 2009. And then when we started New Life Downtown, they're like, we'll serve on the communion team. It's what we do. Well, several months ago, Leonard had an accident here while serving to prepare the communion for all of us. And he's had to have surgeries. And it's been a long road of recovery. You would think after all of that, you could be like, okay, you know what? I've done my time. Like, Leonard and Joy, just take a Sunday off, would you? You know, like, no. Soon as Leonard was well enough, and their daughter just got married, Beth and Sean just got married a little bit ago, Leonard was well enough to walk Beth down the aisle at great joy for them. And then the Sunday after, Leonard's serving communion again at New Life Downtown. Those are saints. When you look at these lives, you'd say, I, we, I, we, we have no one like these people. Who, who are these people? They're right here. And so I want to say to you, New Life Downtown, don't try to live this alone. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work for Paul. Paul didn't want to do it. Paul found himself single in this time of his life, and he said, I've got a person who's like a son to me. I've got a person who's like a brother to me. i got you, Philippians, who I feel this deep affection for. Listen, this is why we're inviting you to meal groups and courses and gatherings, not because we want to busy up your schedule, not because we believe that programs will do the work of discipleship. It's because we believe that discipleship happens in the context of relationship, and if you don't have others who are walking with you to Jesus, what do we have? But with one another, we can keep going. Amen? And actually, the goal of all of this, the goal of all of this is that we become those kinds of saints to others. You think, well, that can't be true of me. You know how Paul opens his letter to the Philippians? <laughs> Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ who are at Philippi. Paul's trying to say to them, I already know who you are. And my pastoral job is to call you up to it. That's what Paul's saying. You're already these kinds of lives. You don't know it yet, but I'm going to call you up to it. All of us are here to live this out. And as Jason preached last week, Philippians 2, verse 13, God is the one who enables us both to want and to actually do, actually live out his good purposes. Would you bow your heads this morning?